Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is John Inkleden, who is president of Hisamatsu America. We will discuss the success of topical pain relief products in the United States Hispanic market. John is also Chief Executive Officer of Hisamitsu America. According to his biography, he has a broad background in marketing, new product development, management, team building, global commercialization, sales, in-licensing, acquisitions, and divestitures. John, welcome. Thank you, Elena. Pleased to be here. What are we referring to when we say topical pain relief? It sounds pretty easy to understand, but I'm not sure that everybody knows where the lines are for pain relief products. So is is it a cream? Is is that what we're talking about? Um, well, that's a good question, Elena, because um, actually there's uh, there's several components to to consider. Uh, here in the United States, uh, we're regulated for drugs and devices by the Food and Drug Administration. So uh, there are topical pain relief devices. Uh, some people may have been in physical therapy and are familiar with something called a TENS device, uh, which is electrostimulation, which is uh, meant uh, to heal uh, pains. Um, but what we're really focused on here is the drug portion of uh, topical medicine, and even that can be divided into two groups. Science today is such that you can apply a medicine topically, but still drive it through the skin and into the circulatory system. So it it works similar to what a systemic drug or a pill would. Uh, The point of administering it topically is you can better control the dose, and in some cases you bypass uh, the stomach um, which uh, may be a safer administration because of the risk of stomach upset, ulceration, or what have you. Um, but what we're really focused on is is, is true topical application. Uh, these medicines are not meant to get into the circulatory system. They're meant to work very locally, uh, right at the site of pain. And creams uh, certainly uh, fit within that uh, from a, a form standpoint, uh, gels, uh, our expertise is, is in the uh, patch uh, form, um, but even uh, sprays and foams uh, can be applied topically and work locally. What is in a patch? It sounds like it's distinct from a gel or a cream. Well, a patch um, is, uh, is, is essentially a, a carrier of the medicine. Um, so the, the medicines and even the uh, uh, the percentage concentrations uh, are going to be similar, uh, whether you're a cream or a spray or a patch. Uh, a patch uh, enables certain uh, benefits and conveniences. Uh, number one, typically they're no mess. You know, sometimes uh, these gels and creams can be oily, can be messy. You get it on your hands, you're definitely going to have to wash afterwards. So a patch tends to be uh, something that is a, a clean uh, application. Also, it's a, it's a controlled dose. Um, you know, it's, it's the right dose that's already pre-measured in the form, whereas when you deal with uh, sprays and, and creams and gels, uh, you're self-applying that. And recently, um, to show you some of the concerns that uh, a body like the Food and Drug Administration has in mind, 
is there was just the uh, RX to OTC switch uh, of the active diclofenac under the brand name Voltaren. And it comes with a dosing card, uh, which, you know, can be a bit cumbersome. You, you have to lay the gel out next to the dosing card, and depending on the size of the joint you're treating, the, the, the dose is two different lengths. And that's meant to make sure that you, you only apply the right amount because uh, too much and you run the risk of some of that, that active actually getting into uh, the circulatory system. So with a patch, it's, it's all pre-measured and convenient, but the concentrations are very similar regardless uh, uh, of the form. Is the medication itself woven into the patch, or is it a gel or a cream that is part of the patch? Yeah, so um, there are a couple of variants of, of patches. Uh, one is a, a hydrogel. Uh, formulation, which is uh, water-based, uh, where uh, it's it's applied to the patch materials, um, and you that kind of a patch you can tell because it's generally a little bit thicker. Uh, it generally attracts the ambient temperature of a room, so it, it, it when first applied, it, it may have a a, a coolness to it, uh, even a little bit of a of a chill if you're. You know, in an air-conditioned room, this thing may go on at 65 degrees, and and you'll notice that coolness when the patch is applied. If it's a if it's a hydrogel, uh, we we have an alternative dry patch patch, excuse me, technology, where um, you know, again, it's a it's a layer that's embedded within the patch materials, uh, but it's not water-based, um, and you know, this uh, type of technology allows for uh, what I would say. Uh, better adhesion for joints that are going to stretch the patch. So, um, you know, if you were going to put something on your back or thigh, a hydrogel can work very well. If you were going to put something on your elbow uh, or your knee, uh, you may prefer uh, the alternative to the to the hydrogel. If it's not water-based, what is the base? Um well, the base is uh, is is a chemical base. It's just it's not it's not uh uh, administered in um, a, a water miscible uh, material that that is uh, embedded in the patch. Well, now once it's in the patch, in the water-based or chemical-based formula, the idea is that your skin absorbs it. Is that right? Well, we want to be careful a little bit with the word um, absorption, right? Because in a true topical, so again, we, we have what we call a transdermal technology, essentially through the skin. And you have drugs uh, like a nitroglycerin patch or um, uh, some of the topical opioid patches. Uh, those products are intended to go through the skin into the bloodstream. They are intended to be absorbed. Here, the work of, of the true topical patches, not a transdermal, but a topical patch, uh, which is what we're really talking about here, uh, is, is to work really at the surface of the skin or to the extent that it's going to push through into the top layers of the muscle. Uh, typically, the only active that's going to do that, that's uh, OTC, is going to be your diclofenac, uh, which is a non-steroidal, or methyl salicylate, which is also a non-steroidal. Otherwise, things like uh, menthol and, and camphor, they pretty much sit atop the skin, and they basically create um, 
a mild uh, level of irritation intended to increase the blood flow, which is the mechanism there for uh, relieving the pain. Just to make sure that I've understood, the concept with the topical is not for it to be absorbed through the skin and into the bloodstream, but rather for it to work where you've applied the patch. Correct, which should be right at the site of pain or the gel or the cream. Yes, uh, but recognize uh, the words are tricky. There's topical and there's transdermal, and both can be a cream or a patch or a gel, but their objectives are definitely different. I have read that the skin absorbs, for lack of a better term, forgive me if I don't have the technical terms correctly, poorly. In other words, that you can apply, say, for example, for moisturizing purposes, coconut oil or almond oil or whatever substance you like, and that oftentimes it's useless or mineral oils because it doesn't go anywhere. It's just It just stays on the surface. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a scientist by training, but um, there's a lot of discussion around uh, small molecule and large molecule technology, and certainly all of the uh, active, pharm- active pharmaceutical ingredients have to be evaluated for the sort of thing that you're talking about, uh, which is their ability to penetrate uh, the, the skin. Uh, certainly there are skin penetrants out there that uh, help enable uh, push uh, drug uh, through the skin and and into the circulatory system uh, where needed, um, but we we don't um, you know like I say other than the the two NSAIDs that are available OTC, um, diclofenac and methyl salicylate, uh, pretty much all the other actives really do sit at the at the top of the of the skin. And by OTC you mean over the counter that doesn't Correct. require a prescription. Correct. What size area would one of these patches that we're talking about, the ones that you do use, not the transdermal kind, but the topical ones that are designed to provide pain relief in the specific area applied, what kind of a reach in terms of depth and width, if you will, so how large an area, if you put it on your, um, I don't know, knee, does it reach your ankle, and how deep down does it go? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, the, the treated area uh, is going to go, um, you know, roughly speaking, an inch, an inch and a half uh, outside the perimeter of the patch. So uh, if you treat your, your, your back, it's, it's not going to go down to, to your ankle type of thing. It's, there's, no, there's no means of transit uh, because it's not in the circulatory system. So it really does act locally. The difference, uh, you know, in patch sizes and and the like uh, is important. Uh, the lower back and and the lower back is probably um, one of the leading uses for pain relievers, both systemic and topical. It is it is something that um, uh, people find perhaps the most difficulty in getting real relief uh, from pain uh, is in the lower back area. Um, we have patches designed to really cover that that lower uh, back area, you know, six six inches uh, by uh, three and a half or four inches. Uh, so it's a it's a nicely sized patch that can fit right across that that lower back. 
Now, there are other places uh, where you may suffer some body pains where you don't need a patch that size, and, and certainly there are alternatives. And uh, when you think about uh, creams and gels, uh, you know, you, you can apply those to, to the site of pain. But if anything, you know, when you apply a patch, the expectation is, you know, the treatment area may grow by an inch or inch and a half around the perimeter, but it's, it's not going to uh, move from one body part to, uh, to another. What duration do they have? Is it an hour or longer? Well, they uh, they vary, and and just a, a quick uh, tutorial here on on these products. Uh, a lot of folks don't know, and and this makes the United States in particular a little bit unique. Um, that uh, we the Food and Drug Administration does not review all of these different over the counter products, not just in topical pain, but but even in systemic, uh, you know, pain pills and and um, allergy medicines and the like, uh, because we have what's called a uh, monograph. And the monograph, think of it as a cookbook. And the cookbook provides uh, all the essentials that you need to commercialize a product. It's specific about its formula. It's uh, specific about its label. And you have to operate in what we call a good manufacturing practicing facility. If you have those three things, um, you can go to market and introduce a product. Uh, but like with a cookbook, uh, you know, the recipe is the same for everybody. So how do you compete? Everybody has the same label. Everybody has the, the same actives. So uh, the alternative to that is what's called the new drug application process. And I would say of the brands that are commercialized in the drugstore section uh, of your pharmacy uh, that are over-the-counter drugs, uh, that probably 70% of them are monograph, meaning they've never been directly reviewed by the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, we have a formulation that is an exception to that. We did do uh, a new drug application. And that new drug application is standardized such that if you're going to introduce a new molecular entity, a new molecule, uh, or you're going to do what we did, which is taking existing molecules but seeking a unique label, uh, the process is essentially the same. The amount of work the FDA requires may vary, but the paperwork and the process and the user fees and all the other things that the FDA requires are the same. So our goal was to uh, demonstrate that uh, our product was uh, efficacious not only in mild pain, but also in moderate pain. So think of pain as uh, mild, moderate, and severe. And there aren't any OTCs that should really be treating severe pain. That, that needs to be addressed quickly uh, by a learned intermediary, particularly a physician. So uh, the, the FDA is not going to sanction that, and no manufacturer is going to sanction treating severe pain with an over-the-counter medication. But we did clinicals in moderate pain sufferers, and we did generate uh, efficacy in moderate pain sufferers, and that has given us uh, a label that's unique uh, to the rest of the OTC products, uh, including systemic, uh, excuse me, systemic analgesics, which are labeled uh, only for mild or minor pain. In addition, it enabled us to secure a 12-hour duration on that particular product. Otherwise, uh, most products are six to eight hours uh, in duration that are topical. 
what is in the patch? What is the source of the analgesic? So it's a painkiller. What is the magic formula? Or maybe not the formula, but what is the, the magic or the essential ingredient that is helping with the pain? So in that in that product that I mentioned, we, we have a, a new drug application approval on. That is a that is a combination product of methyl salicylate. So methyl salicylate is, is a, a salicylic acid derivative and salicylic acid is aspirin. So uh, you you have that as one active and then you have menthol, um, which is referred to as a, a, a rubefacient or, or a counter irritant. And the menthol gives an, a very quick sensation, uh, both just from a mild scent, but when it goes on the skin, uh, you can generate a sensation pretty quickly. Uh, the methyl salicylate is something that we would hope is going to seep uh, through the epidermis and down into the muscle. Um, and that's, you know, in, in, in the particular case of, of the, the new drug product, uh, that's uh, the new drug approved product. Uh, those are the two actives uh, that we use uh, in, in, in that case. And where do you source that? Meaning it's from a plant base, even if it's been modified for use in the patches, it, it comes from a plant. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it, it, it can come from from a plant, a methyl salicylate, uh, sort of a wintergreen, um, you know, menthol is menthol plants. But but a lot of these things are, are also uh, chemically created uh, as well, uh, simply because they're easier to standardize and, and, and qualify and the like. And in what country are these patches manufactured? So we're a Japanese uh, company, and uh, about 85% of the products or the revenue we generate here in North America comes from products made uh, in Japan at our own facilities. I'm, I'm not sure that I understood. So the patches that you're selling in the United States, are they manufactured in Japan? Yes, yes, at a company-owned facility. So uh, to manufacture patches, I mean, it takes some skill um, and some uh, capital investment and the like to have these facilities. Uh, we've been in this business, our, our, our parent company, um, you know, was was founded in the uh, 1830s. So we, we've been at this, uh, you know, 178, 180 years. Um, and so we have the facilities uh, that are capable of, of turning out uh, high-quality patches. Uh, but most other companies that compete here in the U.S. Uh, on the patch side uh, use a third party. They they don't make their own. They They contract. Uh, a manufacturer to make the product for them. 85% of the products that you're manufacturing are manufactured in Japan in your own plants. The remaining 15%, do they come from China, India, Korea? No, no. Um, they actually come from uh, the United States, and uh, they are uh, – uh, they are uh, uh, cream uh, and uh, roll-on uh, product. No, no, no patches. Between your manufacturing plants in Japan and 
the 15% made in the United States, 100% of your products are made in Japan or the United States. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So why, I guess is the question that comes to mind, why did Hisamitsu decide to pursue the United States market for these products? How, what was that process like? So officially, uh, the company landed here in 1987. Um, and as a lot of Japanese companies were doing at the time, they were debating uh, the concept of globalization. And, and the United States is today even uh, the world's number one uh, market for over-the-counter uh, drugs uh, on a sales basis. And um, I think uh, my colleagues in Japan at the time, uh, well, actually, the way it came about was there was a Japanese gentleman who was retiring from the banking business uh, that worked for a, a Japanese bank in New York who saw an opportunity to bring this famous patch from Japan to the United States, the patch being the Salon Pass brand, where uh, Hizumitsu and Salon Pass are uh, as much household names as, you know, Tide uh, detergent is is here. And um, he he propositioned uh, management uh, at Hizumitsu to get things started, and he landed in um, Torrance, California. Now, if you know anything about Torrance, it's only about 15 miles from uh, Los Angeles Airport, but that was the landing place of a lot of the Japanese automakers. At one point in time, Honda and Toyota both had their headquarters in Torrance, and, and Toyota just moved out of there within the last year or so to Texas. So uh, basically, they were looking for some home cooking where um, the environment, the culture uh, in the local community where they were starting up uh, had ties back to Japan, had connections in order to try to get this business off the ground. Um, and in that regard, I think was a smart move. Uh, headquarters at the time did not offer uh, a lot of financial support other than the product at a, a very inexpensive price. That was more or less their, their contribution to get this going. And uh, the gentleman that started it up from the bank, you know, it was literally door-to-door uh, -door, uh, selling. Uh, first to, uh, if you look at the West Coast, um, the corridor there has a lot of uh, pockets of Asian population, whether uh, Vietnamese, uh, Filipinos, Chinese, Japanese, uh, up and down from, you know, San Diego up through uh, Seattle, uh, you do have these pockets. And this gentleman went around looking to get distribution in what we might refer to as an Asian bodega uh, uh, of the product and, and got it to a point where he got the interest of some of the national wholesalers in the United States like McKesson. And McKesson, in turn, helped get distribution at Walmart and a couple of other retailers. And so the business from 87 till 2010, built to a level uh, of about 18, 19 million dollars in retail, at which time the company felt that, you know, we're not very competitive in the U.S. market. Rather than have a Japanese expat run it, maybe we need somebody with experience in the U.S. market uh, try to help elevate the brand. So that's how I came into the picture. I, I was recruited uh, by a firm called Spencer Stewart. Uh, arrived late in 2010, have been here ever since. And um, 
the attraction of this opportunity, and I, I came from the OTC industry. I was uh, 25 years thereabouts at what is now Pfizer, but really was a bunch of precursor companies, uh, Letterly Laboratories, part of American Cyanamid, then American Home, which changed its name to Wyeth, and then Pfizer bought uh, Wyeth uh, back in uh, 2009 or 2010. So I had a lot of different experience in the in the OTC area. So I had a sense that this was an underdeveloped category. And part of that comes from the fact that, you know, there really is an east-west difference in terms of perception uh, of of the body and, and how to manage it. And in Eastern medicine, uh, there's a big influence from traditional Chinese medicine or TCM, uh, where the body is, is pretty much viewed as a temple. And the more you can keep out of it to maintain your life, uh, the better is, is more or less the, the thinking there. And uh, that led to concepts like moxibustion, where you're using heat. Think of uh, what's something that looks like a cigar, but, but, but actually uh, could have been uh, dried menthol or that kind of thing. Uh, run along the spine about an inch above. That heat is trying to draw the blood to that site of pain, which is the natural way to, to heal, is to increase the level of, of blood flow. And that led then to the creations of things like uh, poultices, which are really the precursor to patches. They're cloth materials that you would tie, uh, and the inside of which contains the, the raw menthol uh, or the willow bark, um, you know, or the wintergreen. And that then got tied uh, around your arm or your leg or wherever the site of pain was. Um, and so that's more or less how the business evolved. Now, here in the West, you know, with the discovery of aspirin by Bayer in, in willow tree bark, the ability to, to create a pill out of that, that was a quick, easy, effective, inexpensive, uh, the chemical synthesis that led to NSAIDs like uh, diclofenac, like ketoprofen, uh, like naproxen. Uh, the West developed this mindset that, you know, anything's curable if you take a pill. Unfortunately, as we know now, that that sometimes that was so lax that we had collateral issues, uh, which in part contributed to things like the uh, the opioid crisis. So uh, recognizing that uh, the United States and really North America uh, were very underdeveloped in the topical business, you knew it was an uphill fight because you're really challenging consumer behavior that's embedded in, I can cure anything with a pill. But nonetheless, there were things that were happening in this time frame like the opioid crisis, that we're suggesting, well, we may want to rethink whether everything is curable with a pill. And uh, that was really the beginning of the opportunity that, you know, just from our brand, from a category standpoint, the category has grown from about a $400 million business uh, to a billion one uh, at the end of uh, last year, 2020. So in 10 years, you know, that, that business, that category almost tripled. Uh, it got a big influx in the last year by the introduction of Voltaren, which went from prescription to OTC. Uh, our business in that time has gone from $20 million to, uh, depending on your data source, uh, as much as $191 million. The uh, information resources data, that, that is your food drug mass scan-based data, 
uh, has us at 130 million. If you take the scan-based data from Costco and add that, uh, that has us at uh, 160 million. If you add in our Amazon business and our Costco.com business and things like that, you get to about 165 million. And if you take the household panel, which is a, a 250,000 person panel that IRI manages that is representative, so they say, of the entire demographic makeup of the United States, uh, that has our sales uh, at about 192 million. So, you know, we started at 19 or 20 in 2010 and we closed 2020, uh, depending on, you know, what you want to look at from 130 to 192 million. That seems significant. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a good run. How did you approach other than this going against the grain, as it were, this mindset of pills solve all your problems and when you were introducing a topical product, how did you approach the U.S. market as a whole? Did you segment it by culture or age or language? What was your approach? The, the most salient group that really needs to pay attention to topicals is going to be your aging population because, you know, unfortunately, uh, there's this benign concept around pills that uh, works against the patient if they're really not on top of things. You know, these are people who often have uh, three or four prescriptions uh, that they're taking uh, daily, and uh, most of those are pills. And, you know, the body has its defense mechanism. You know, medicine is not always viewed as something the body wants. In fact, it's often viewed as toxins, which is why the milligram loads on pills are often much higher than what's needed to actually impact the ailment. And the reason for that is the, the pills travels through the circulatory system in the body meets with a bunch of critical filters. So you've got your, um, you know, your liver. Uh, you've got your kidneys. Um, you know, these are the body's filters, and they're trying to knock that, that drug out. And there's got to be enough medicine in the pills to be able to get it uh, to the site of pain where it can actually uh, help you. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, when you put that met much medicine in there, it, over the long term, it can take uh, a toll on your liver, on your kidneys, on your stomach. Uh, you know, through ulcerations and, and, and bleeding, because a lot of times these, these pills are acids. Um, and so uh, the elderly population in this country is, is really the most vulnerable. Also, pain is something they live with every day, you know, just the aging process. Um, it's, it's, you know, just to get up and get moving in the morning, uh, whether it's from arthritis or other things. Uh, people rely on medications, and uh, some of these medications at higher doses are available by prescription, and folks have taken it upon themselves for perhaps economic reasons uh, to buy the OTCs and treat as if they were a uh, prescription. And they, they don't realize that when you do that for longer than what the label is indicated for or at higher doses than what the label is indicated for, that there can be very serious consequences. And we've seen that with opioids. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm not here to, to say systemic 
drugs are not effective and appropriate to have a place here. But if you use them exactly as labeled, you have a headache, you want to take a couple of Tylenol or a couple of Advil, terrific. But when you want to treat your chronic arthritis, when you want to treat uh, uh, back pain uh, you know, for an extended period uh, with 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, now now you're 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 taking much greater risk than you you should or you even need to. And and this is where we saw our opportunity to sort of elevate topical pain relievers from really the way they were positioned in the United States was was sort of as a, a first aid remedy. I, I played touch football on Thanksgiving. The next day I had some soreness. You know, let me grab the Ben Gay uh, to uh, consideration as a, a first-line pain treatment for muscle pain, for body pains, back pain, muscle pain, joint pain. And, and that's, you know, we're still in that battle deep. But that's what we saw as the opportunity in the key constituent group we started with was the 50-plus uh, the population. Now, the Hispanic market in the U.S. generally skews young compared to the general population, which is much more of an aging population. So how did you reach that market segment, or was that perhaps not an uh, early market segment that you targeted? Was that like a tertiary market? Well, initially, it, it was a, uh, a tertiary market. Um, we, we were trying to, to get it right, you know, thematically, uh, the way we were trying to walk our target audience through this uh, notion of uh, call it topicals first uh, was at first um, we wanted to make it appear that Solampas was a discovery. There was a new treatment available that nobody had really ever heard of, even though we've been in the market since 1987. So, the, the commercial executions we had um, focused really on uh, pretend it was your next door neighbor talking to you over your fence. You were trimming your shrubs or, or doing some activity and uh, you were complaining that your back hurt or whatever. And your friend introduces you to, hey, I, I just found this salampas, you know, and talks you through a little bit. It did this. It has this. You know, it's safe. It's effective. And, and it, it was intended to sort of drive conversation uh, amongst the, the target audience. And, you know, that got us some, some good traction. The next thematic phase, though, was to underscore that there's real science behind our products. And like I say, you know, uh, NDAs, so most of our category is monograph, but on the systemic side, ibuprofen, naproxen, sodium, those were prescription that have gone OTC. So they have a, uh, a scientific background. They have an FDA approval. Uh, most people, again, kind of view topicals as first aid. So we, we wanted to elevate the science behind the product and started to produce commercials that focused on our innovation center uh, with people in blue lab coats that were doing uh, the kind of work that one would expect in a first class uh, pain product. Um, and it was at about this time that uh, Univision, uh, which is one of the two major uh, Spanish language networks here in the USA, uh, approached us and really gave us an excellent education on the importance of the uh, Hispanic consumer. Uh, and, and it's amazing. Uh, they do skew younger, and, and it's a fast-growing population. But it is an economically powerful 
uh, constituency uh, in this country with, as a, a brand marketer, some great values that you covet. Uh, yeah, the Hispanic community is very brand loyal. And, uh, and you know, the subtext of this is that there's a great respect for the elderly within that culture. And if we could get the elderly in that culture to embrace our product, it might reflect well to the younger folks within, within that, that population. So uh, we, about five, five and a half years ago, uh, made our first investment in um, Spanish language advertising through Univision. Uh, the results were extraordinary. But the issue we were running into is that at the time, Univision uh, really was the leader in the marketplace. Uh, that's changed a little bit now. But at that time, they were, and uh, they drove a hard bargain uh, on their pricing for, for media. And unfortunately, even though we had a great 12-week sort of test run, uh, to run the sort of plan we were hoping for, it was, it was really at the time cost prohibitive. Um, but there were a couple of folks I stayed in touch with over there at Univision. And, um, you know, ultimately they came back. It was a couple of years later. They came back with, uh, uh, a much, uh, more affordable package. I mean, there were a couple of bells and whistles we lost, but it was, uh, uh, it, you know, the CPMs were good. The reach was nice. And, and we thought this was an effective package to reach our target audience of, uh, Spanish speaking, uh, Hispanic, uh, consumers and um, you know we ran that first year again we had we had very good results now at about this time we in the mass market were looking to uh, so you know it was sort of person to person friend to friend look what I discovered it's you know look at the innovation behind Solampas to now recognizing that we had grown a great deal uh, just through uh, advertising, we needed another lever to break down the barriers of resistance that we felt existed in the marketplace amongst pill users and others. And what we really felt we needed was a boost from the learned intermediary, uh, meaning the physician um, and in some cases the pharmacist. So I think we broke a lot of ground. You know, there was a, uh, essentially a, these uh, National Association of Broadcaster Codes that uh, essentially ruled out OTCs from using doctors in commercials. And we had to fight that uh, with a number of networks saying that, you know, uh, what, what are you talking about? I mean, uh, these doctors do recommend OTCs. And we were able to break through the first year with a couple of networks and ultimately even more. And, you know, the first year we put uh, uh, two different doctors, this Bob Arnott and this Dr. Jeff Gooden, in our commercials on television, uh, not only did the brand respond, but recommendation levels amongst physicians picked up. You know, physicians watch TV, too, I guess is the, the, the takeaway there. Uh, so we've run that for a couple of years. And then two years ago, we felt, after we did some research, that, you know, this is an opportunity uh, in the uh, Hispanic community, too. And, uh, again, I can't underscore enough how supportive uh, Univision is. Uh, a lot of the television networks... Uh, will give you essential data, but but Univision because they know that even though people respect the Hispanic community, they may not be from a priority standpoint the most affordable choice. 
So Univision goes to great lengths to help you with market research, to test your commercials, to do a lot of value-added things to help bring you along. And, you know, they've, they've been a, a, a great partner. So um, we used uh, our, our public relations uh, firm, uh, uh, Vorticom, uh, under Nancy Thompson, uh, to try to identify some uh, physicians, Spanish-speaking physicians, that might be interested in being featured uh, on a commercial. And uh, we uh, came across uh, Dr. Jose Colon. Uh, Dr. Colon um, is a uh, orthopedic surgeon, a very well-to-do, tremendous practice, a Park Avenue, New York practice, in fact, very well-spoken, both in English and Spanish. And of course, you know, we have to make sure that, that his practice is reputable, that, um, you know, he's an upstanding person and, uh, and, and his track record is great. And, you know, he checked, uh, all of those boxes. And beyond that, he had a terrific smile, you know, an implicit bedside manner that can come across in an execution that says, you can trust me. And so, uh, you know, a year ago, we went and shot a commercial, uh, with Dr. Cologne. And it was in that year where, according to the household panel data, so again, the household panel is 250,000 Americans that replicate the uh, demographics of the U.S. So we can isolate the Hispanic community and our sales numbers in that subgroup uh, to measure uh, what our trends are based on the different marketing activities we have. And when that commercial went on with Dr. Colon uh, as a physician, encouraging people to consider topical pain relievers first, uh, our business grew to the point where we became uh, the number one uh, brand amongst Hispanics uh, in the U.S., um, which, you know, uh, is a great achievement for us. Um, it, it really is. It's, it's a close race. Uh, I could not tell you that it's not going to go back and forth a little bit with Icy Hot uh, over the next six or eight months. Um, but Icy Hot was twice our size uh, just three years ago. So uh, we've come a long way fast, and uh, we actually increased our media budget uh, in Hispanic, in Spanish language advertising this year uh, by 30% because that's where we're getting the best return. And uh, that, as I say, because of the brand loyalty uh, within that community and culture, uh, you know, it's a place we want to be. Uh, and it's a place where we seem to have uh, a motivated audience. And it's been, uh, it's been a good relationship and uh, a, a very good run uh, with that uh, group of, uh, of citizens. How did you get a reputable, successful practicing physician, if I understood correctly, to do an ad for you? Well, I have to give, again, a lot, a lot of credit to Vorticom and to, uh, to, to Nancy. She's, she's pretty tenacious. Uh, she uh, asks around. You know, we, she has been doing blogs for 10 consecutive years. You know, it's not just advertising that, that has helped build our brand. She puts out a weekly blog uh, through, uh, folks that, uh, do everything from, uh, uh, hot yoga to, uh, uh, physical therapy to a lot of different things. And, you know, she uses this, uh, this Rolodex she has to ask around and, and get some names and, and some suggestions and, uh, two or three names surfaced and, uh, she gets on the phone and, and she tries to, to gauge their interest. And, and, you know, the physicians, 
sometimes they don't know a lot about the product and and they're interested, but you know, they, they want to make sure the product is reputable, that there's science behind it, that um, that this is something how they conduct their practice. And uh, Dr. Cologne has a, a terrific spouse who kind of uh, works in the office with him as sort of the office manager. She was the first person that Nancy uh, got a hold of. Um, but she's a very bright lady in, in her own right. I remember sitting with her at the shoot a year ago uh, when Dr. Cologne did his first commercial. Uh, just uh, uh, an inquisitive, uh, brilliant mind. Um, and, uh, you know, she uh, honestly brought the opportunity uh, to Jose uh, after Nancy went over it and uh, kind of encouraged him. And, uh, you know, he he had a couple of meetings with us. He asked his questions. He felt comfortable. Uh, he came to the shoot. Uh, he did a fantastic job. And, and look, I think the proof of it is this. <clears throat> we just two weeks ago aired new commercials, 30-second commercials. Pretty much we try to stay with 15s in order to broaden our reach and frequency. But we, we felt these were important messages based on a clinical study we had just completed. And we were employing two physicians in the spot. One is this Dr. Jeff Gooden, who we've used previously. The second one is Dr. Cologne. His English, his presence, his smile, his, his energy uh, was convincing enough to us that he's not only in our new Spanish language commercial, he's in our you know, mass commercial uh, across all languages where he speaks English. So this is a, a, a dynamic individual that uh, you know, we're very pleased to, to be associated with. How do you define Hispanic market for purposes of this discussion? Because we've been talking about the overall U.S. market, and then we narrowed that down to an aging population are the people who are most likely to use your products. And then from there, you focused on the Spanish language market because of your interactions and sales pitches from Univision. How are you or are you narrowing and tracking the success in the subgroups within the Hispanic market? Yes. So, uh, Elena, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, there's a lot of bilingualism out there, and we could have just said, you know what, there's enough bilingualism that everybody will just see our English language commercial and, and, and we'll be fine. Um, but our association with Univision – uh, persuaded us differently and said there's enough Spanish-dominant households out there that you're missing an opportunity. And so through the household panel, we can look at English-preferred households versus Spanish-preferred households. And we wanted to see, obviously, if we're investing in Spanish-language advertising, uh, greater growth in that uh, group of people than in the bilingual or the uh, English preferred. And in fact, that's, that's the case. That segment is in fact within the broader Hispanic context. The Spanish language preferred has been, uh, the accelerated growth driver for our, for us, uh, un, under the umbrella Hispanic. What penetration would you say that you have achieved in the Spanish language market right now? So uh, when we look at uh, the uh, total in the Spanish language market, okay, in the Spanish language market, 
And just give me one second here because I I can call something up. The U.S. Spanish language market Correct. only, not Latin America. Correct. Uh, okay. So according to the household panel, we have a, a 19% share of the Spanish preferred uh, market uh, with Salampas. Now, in the total U.S., uh, in food, drug, and mass, uh, our market share is about 12.6. So, you know, this is, this is more than double. I'm sorry, not more than double. This is 50%, greater than 50% higher uh, than what our, our national share is. Um, and, and just year on year, um, you know, so 19% at the end of 2020, and we were at about 14.5% uh, at the end of 2019. So uh, our, our share is building. Our growth is, 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 uh, is going well uh, within that uh, Spanish-preferred uh, constituency. What about the English-dominant and bilingual markets within the Hispanic market, which are the vast majority of the Hispanic market. Do you have any idea what your penetration is in that? Yeah, I can tell you that our market share among bilingual is 25. Um, so uh, we are more developed there, uh, but the, the growth is not, is not as great as the Spanish preferred. Would you go over those numbers again? So your overall U.S. market penetration is 12.6%. Your Spanish language is 19%, and your bilingual is 25%. Am I misunderstanding? No, correct. And among English-dominant Hispanics, do you have any data? The uh, English-preferred is... Looks to be about uh, 27, 28%. So higher than the bilingual. Yeah. So do you attribute that success to this physician that you were talking about, your paid spokesperson? Well, again, I think if, if you're bilingual or English preferred, you, you've enjoyed what we've done for the, the full 10 years. Uh, you know, in English even. Um, I, I think the introduction of our Spanish language advertising and then the accelerant that using Dr. Cologne has added to this uh, has absolutely made, made a difference. Other than this quarter or was it a yeah, quarter million household panel that you talked about, what forms of tracking do you use for your marketing efforts and what channels are you using? Uh, well, we are able to get for certain retailers uh, by zip code uh, store sales. So we look at uh, zip codes that are 75% uh, Hispanic and we aggregate the sales by these retailers. They're pretty big retailers, uh, Walgreens, uh, Rite Aid, CVS, um, Walmart. And so we sort of have a, a custom aggregate, if you will, 
of just what our sales are. So, so we, we have no visibility to competitors in that. And what channels are you running the campaigns in? Is it exclusively on Univision? It, it is, but, you know, Univision has, like, all these sub-networks, Galavision and, and several others, and so we, we are on uh, a number of their, their different networks. And in the mainstream markets, what channels are you using your um, – sorry, what channels are you running your ads in? So we, uh, we, we do uh, a, a lot of cable – especially cable prime, and then on the broadcast side of things, so your ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox uh, type of thing, we we use um, news especially. Um, that, uh, you know, I, I don't know, Elena, if, if you watch the, the national news at night, but uh, you'll see a lot of drug advertising on there, and, and, and that's because a lot of the 50-plus eyeballs are riveted uh, to the news at, at 6.30 at night uh, across the country. Now, I noticed two, I don't know if the term is channel, uh, two formats perhaps that we have not talked about, and I'm assuming that it's because of the market segment being an aging market and the eyeballs being focused on television. But are you doing any outreach on social media or online? Well, one thing that we uh, we have done is uh, our uh, website is is bilingual. Um, it, with respect to uh, social media, you know, we're trying to learn our way through that. Uh, to, to be honest, and I, I hear great things, and and people have proclaimed that that's that's the future. Uh, fortunately, in our target audience. Uh, that group is still a great place to reach people by television. The younger people, uh, you know, that have unplugged and, and, and the like, if that's, if that's the term, uh, social media probably does have a, a greater prevalence. So uh, we, we are out there. <coughs> we are trying things, um, but it is uh, a modest uh, part of our, uh, of our budget right now. What are you thinking going forward? Are you going to continue more of the same? Do you have revolutionary plans moving forward? Well, I, I think the um, you know the levers we look at um, are I think we want to continue making an investment in the Hispanic community because we're getting a nice return and it's a very it's a it's a growing population. Um, I also think that. Uh, our emphasis. So last year, for the first time, uh, we actually had a uh, medical uh, marketing effort. We, we detailed physicians. We do believe that we, we, we need that physician endorsement that the ibuprofens and the naproxen sodiums have. Uh, you can get people so far with a 30-second commercial, a 15-second commercial, um, you know, some sort of a uh, – uh, social media type ad or what have you, or a blog, but uh, ultimately the learned intermediary uh, is important because they put in context the why. Why is it that I should be using a topical first? Uh, it's tough to get the, the full story into a 15-second or 30-second commercial, but you know our tagline is uh, Salampas is good medicine, and, and it really is for a, 
a host of ways. Uh, the label on systemic analgesics, and again, the, the odds are extremely lower, of course, the Food and Drug Administration wouldn't allow them to be sold. But there's no question that the back label of a Tylenol or an Advil raises the concept of a first-dose heart attack or stroke. It's extremely rare, but apparently it occurs enough that the FDA wants it on the back of a label of an OTC drug. That's not a risk you need to assume with acute pain. It really isn't. And topicals are not going to drive you there. You're not going to assume that that risk, even if it is infinitesimal, when you use a topical first. And I think people kind of buy into the safety, but they haven't bought into the efficacy, which is why the doctor is important and we continue to uh, need to make uh, an investment in, in that end of the business. We need to continue to bring uh, innovation uh, forward. Uh, and I will say I think we've been a catalyst for a couple of big things that I expect are only going to get bigger. You know, in 2016, the Center for Disease Control came out with guidance for physicians on how to manage pain without opioids. And they recommended that topicals should be considered an alternate first-line treatment to pills. Just last year, as late as September, the American Academy of Family Physicians and the American College of Physicians, after engaging in a significant meta-analysis of all available data, concluded that topical analgesics should be first-line treatment for uh, non-lower back uh, muscle muscle pain. And, you know, that, that was, in their terms, a strong recommendation. So this is, these are the sort of the, the things now that the future can turn on. Um, in, in Asia, we, we, we have a slide and it says half the world's population can't be wrong. When you look at the populations of Asia and the countries that are there, more than half the world's population consume topicals at a level that exceeds systemic pain relievers. Here in the U.S., 85% of pain, OTC pain remedy sales are still, are still in systemic analgesics. That's a big difference than what we see in many places around the world. I mean, Europe's got a, a better ratio. They're not up there with Asia, but there's much greater penetration and usage and acceptability of topicals. It's here in North America where we've, we've, we've grown up in a, in a pill-popping society. Uh, we don't care to read labels. We don't care uh, of the consequences that we feel are negligible. It's about how quick, how fast, how cheap I can get what it is I want to get. Uh, and if that's pain relief, uh, this is, you know, people have, have relied on, on pills. We want to change that. We want to change that for the good. We're not saying pills don't have a place, but we're saying think topicals first. It is good medicine. You were talking earlier about, I think it was the menthol that caused a heating sensation or an irritant, and that reminded me of product that, I, I don't know if it's still in the market, but it was... Um, it activated heat sores, so when you opened the package, yeah. it, they would warm up? Yeah, so there's a product, uh, the brand name of one of those products is Thermacare. And, um, yeah, that is a exothermic chemical reaction. 
Um, but as I said, I think at the outset that here in the United States, we have things regulated as devices for pain and as drugs for pain. That exothermic reaction is regulated as a device. Well, it's different from a topical analgesic, which is what we've been talking about. Yeah, it's a, it's a different mechanism of action, yes. And you also talked about dosage, and that's one of the things that I've heard people talk about. Well, why is it that somebody who weighs 100 pounds takes the same amount of, say, analgesic, aspirin, pick your pill, as someone who is two or three or four times the weight? Anything that you can tell us about that? Uh, you know, Elena, that, that is uh, outside of my, my expertise. I, I um you know, so companies engage what are called dose range finding studies, and uh, these are, you know, phase one type clinicals, sometimes even in animals, uh, where they're trying to, to get at the right levels of, of active to actually do what the product needs to do, whether it's to minimize allergy symptoms or relieve pain or gastrointestinal distress or, or what have you. And, and so as they're working through their sort of playbook as to what's both in efficacious but also safe dose, uh, they do vary that. Uh, unquestionably in their mind, though, is uh, that level that's needed to get through, as I talked about earlier, the, the body's filters. Uh, how they calculate for, for body mass and, and the rest of it, you know, I, I, I can't tell you uh, specifically. Going back overall to the, the market penetration that you have achieved over these years since the 1980s arrival of the company from Japan into the United States. What would you say to our listeners who are interested in reaching the Hispanic market for the first time or perhaps adding to their efforts if they have dipped their toes but they're not really sure if it's worthwhile? Some people think that it's a market that doesn't have a lot of buying power or that isn't worth pursuing, that it's poor, et cetera, et cetera. What would you share in terms of your impressions and your suggestions? Well, I, you know, I think there's perception and there's reality. And, um, you know, oftentimes they're not the same. And uh, we, we had a real eye-opener. Um, you know, if nothing else, call up a Univision, call up uh, a, a Spanish, uh, a, basically a Hispanic marketing communications agency, uh, and, and ask them to give you sort of an up-to-date view uh, of the Hispanic marketplace, because it, it is a real eye-opener. And it does debunk, I think, some of the myths and baggage uh, many of us uh, have been carrying. And, you know, you yourself put, put on Univision for a couple of hours and see the brands and products that are being advertised there. I mean, uh, you know, that alone, I think the quality of the products and the companies that are being represented there is an indication that some people have found that uh, the Hispanic community uh, is a very valuable and important part of the fabric of uh, the American consumer. John, thank you for joining us from Florham Park, New Jersey. Uh, thank you very much, Elena. Uh, I, I really appreciate it, and, and I wish anybody in your audience that uh, is looking uh, to reach uh, uh, a Hispanic audience, uh, uh, best of luck. And to our listeners, you have been listening to John Incliden, who is president of Hisamitsu America, who discussed his company's success 
with topical pain relief products in the United States Hispanic market. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com. 